Let's open the Word of God, please, to uh, Acts 17. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. As we anticipate the Acts of the Plumbers. Yeah, Acts 17, verses 16 through 34 this morning. And just to give us a taste of this passage, we could call it Paul and the Philosophers. Uh, Let me read just kind of the heart of the passage. Look at verse 22. We've got the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey in Athens, Greece, where all the great philosophical thinkers would assemble. And look at uh, chapter 17, verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, Two that is dedicated to an unknown God, just in case we left anybody out. We've got all these temples. Let's build one to the unknown God, just to cover our tracks. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God, not a God, they were polytheists. The God, the only real God, who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for them and grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own prophets or poets have said, for we also are his children. Paul says, verse 29, being then the children of God generically as his creatures, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thought of human beings. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men, human beings, people, males and females, that all people everywhere should repent. Change your mind about your sin. You got it yourself. You can't fix it. And judgment is coming. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men, all human beings, by raising him from the dead. Uh, I've been teaching at uh, Cameron University as an adjunct teacher, a part-time teacher, a class or two every semester since January of 2004. And I consider it kind of like a hobby because it's something I enjoy doing. And uh, the basic course I teach all the time is Communication 1113. It meets on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 o'clock in the morning, 8 a.m. to 9.15. And Tuesday is my day out of the office, kind of my day off 
from regular church duties, although I'm constantly on call, as you know, 24-7. So there's no problem on Tuesday mornings. And on Thursday mornings, I'm usually up here by about 9.45 having taught the class. And then James and I have our uh, weekly staff meeting, although sometimes he calls it a stuff meeting. So I, I think uh, teaching at Cameron has uh, complemented my pastoral ministry And I really enjoy it, but there's one thing I don't like about teaching college students, teaching at the college level, and that is dealing with college students that are just too cool to care. And I'm not uh, indicting any of these individuals on this PowerPoint slide necessarily, Justin Timberlake, uh, David Beckham, the Fonz, and the three ladies, or five ladies, excuse me, that were nominated for Best Actress this past year. I don't really know that much about any of those folks. I'm not indicting them, but they're all considered to be pretty cool. And there are some college students who are just from day one, walking in the first day, they're too cool to care. They're too cool for school. And, and that bothers me because somebody's paying for this, right? Maybe it's their mom. It might be Uncle Sam in some cases. Uh, somebody's paying for it. Somebody signed up for them to take an 8 o'clock speech class, and um, which technically the Federalist Papers defined as cruel and unusual punishment, you know, having to take a speech class that early in the morning. But it, it's, it's frustrating because I don't like to see people waste their time and spin their wheels, and that's bad. To me, that's bad when people are too cool to care about academic things. The only thing worse, guess what? Is people who don't care, don't too cool to care about spiritual things. And we're going to deal with a set of people like that today as we see Paul's ministry in the city of Athens, Greece. But before we dive into our study, uh, Dr. Digg, if you would, lead us in prayer for our teachability to God's Word. And also, as, our, as is our custom and our honor, let's pray for our peace officers, our firefighters, our active military, we see Scott there right in the middle. He's doing drug interdiction somewhere uh, in Central America, north of South America. So a uh, really intense uh, period for him. So let's let's uh, pray in those directions, okay? Nice to see Matthew here today, buddy. Welcome. Um, to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking, and because I like it, top three signs you may have eaten too much Thanksgiving dinner. This is before we dive into our passage. Before anyone else could get to the table, you ate the whole turkey, all of the fruit salad, an entire bowl of gravy, and the cooking thermometer. That's bad, Elliot. You shouldn't have done that. Number two, after the meal, instead of a two-hour nap, it took you two hours to pick your teeth. That's bad. And the final sign you may have eaten too much Thanksgiving dinner is uh, the next morning when you stepped on your bathroom scale, it slowly compressed into a molten ball of hot plastic. Yeah, we uh, the context for our passage today is the second missionary journey. And all of the missionary journeys, one, two, three, start in Antioch of Syria. And in the second missionary journey, Paul and Silas leave Antioch of Syria and go to the Galatian churches, which includes Antioch of Pisidia, same name, different city. So first, uh, Paul revisits the churches uh, to which he wrote a book called Galatians, the churches he had planted during his first missionary journey. Then after getting some closed doors and some direct divine revelation, he goes to Troas and across from Asia into Europe, and he hits major cities like Philippi, 
Thessalonica, Berea, and last week we saw that under fire, the believers in Berea ushered Paul out of town for his own safety and made sure he got to Athens. Just to remember what we saw last week, go back to chapter 17, verse 10. Now we're in Thessalonica and we read the brethren, the Christians in Thessalonica, immediately sent Paul and Silas away from their city because it was dangerous for them to be there because there was persecution against them. Uh, so they left by night to Berea down the road about 30 or 40 miles. And when they arrived, Paul and Silas, they kept doing what they do. They went to the synagogue of the Jews, opened up the scriptures and preached Jesus. Now these, the Jewish folks in the synagogue in Berea, were no more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word from Paul with eagerness, but they would you know, trust but verify. They would double-check what he was saying against Scripture, examining the Scriptures closely and daily to see whether what he was saying about Jesus lined up with the Old Testament Scripture. Therefore, many of them in Berea believed, along with a number of the prominent uh, Greek women and men in the city. But when the anti-Christian Jewish group of Thessalonica found out that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul and Berea, they came the 30 or 40 miles as well, agitating and stirring up the crowd. We talked about outside agitators uh, cause mobs and violence quite often. It's the outsiders that get things going. Then immediately the brethren there in Berea sent Paul out to go as far as the sea. So Berea is inland, but it's not very far from uh, the Aegean. So they sent, got him out of town for his own safety again. So, you know, Paul couldn't really get life insurance doing what he did because it was dangerous. Uh, they sent Paul as far out to the sea, verse 14. But Silas and Timothy, who obviously had a lower profile and people didn't recognize them, the mob couldn't recognize them by sight yet, remained there for a time in Berea. Now, those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, Athens, Greece, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him in Athens as soon as possible. The folks that accompanied Paul left. So we're in the city of Athens today, and we're in roughly uh, late February, early March of uh, 51 A.D., and we're going to see this in Athens. It's first a description of his initial ministry in that city, and then his specific ministry to the philosophers uh, in the city where all the philosophers hung out. And we're going to talk about being too cool to care. can be chilling to the soul. Let's read verses 16 through 18. So Paul's all by himself in Athens on this business trip, and he gets right back to work. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, Silas and Timothy, to come down from Berea to him in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he observed the city full of idols. Now, uh, Homer and Pam had been to Athens, and we walked around uh, the uh, area around the Parthenon. And, of course, you know Athens is an ancient city and was full of all kinds of philosophical thinkers and all kinds of pagan temples. So Paul's looking at this, and I don't think he's angry, although there may be some righteous indignation at the way they're perverting the spiritual truth. I think he's more sad than angry. 
just looking at all this nonsensical religion and all this mumbo-jumbo and all this superstition, and he's just provoked. He's sad. You know, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I think our first reaction to all the evil in us and around us ought to be sadness instead of just anger. That's kind of God's reaction. Verse 17. So, in, with that state of mind, in that setting, Paul was reasoning in the synagogue where the Jews go to pray and read scripture with the Jews and also with Gentiles who were interested in the God of scripture who would come to the synagogue. They're called God-fearing Gentiles. And not only does he minister in and around the synagogue and the Jewish community, he's also every day in the marketplace, right? Uh, the agora, agoraphobia, fear of the marketplace, every day with those who happen to be present. So he's doing a comprehensive, basic evangelistic ministry. It makes sense to go to the synagogue, kind of, number one, out of respect. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God and salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. They got the scripture. It makes sense to go there first. But that doesn't mean he excludes sharing the good news about Jesus to non-Jews, right? Zane, every single day is where people are. If you're going to go fishing, you got to go where the fish are, and that's what Paul would do, right? Verse 18. And also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with Paul, uh, just as he's doing his thing every day trying to share the truth. And some were saying, what, you know, in an insulting, put-down kind of way, what would this idle babbler wish to say? The only reason they're re- listening to him is they just think he's ridiculous, right? Just kind of a crazy, zany, street preacher kind of person. And others were saying, well, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, so he's interacting with Jews and Gentiles in and around the synagogue. He's dealing with average people in the city. He's also dealing with some of the really uh, philosophical movers and shakers who at least are understanding the essence of what he's talking about is Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. Now, it mentions two types of Greek philosophers in verse 18, and this is somewhat oversimplified, but I think it's helpful for us to see what they were with, with, where they came from, these two different schools of thought. Uh, one philosopher who was a good thinker in more recent times said, God created man in his own image, says the Bible. Philosophers reverse the process, they create God in theirs. Right? So you gotta be aware of that. But the Epicureans were basically dedicated to the proposition that the party never stops. You know, the purpose of human beings is personal happiness. So if something feels good, do it. Now today, when that's preached with a Bible uh, canopy over it, and if you think about it, most of the major media ministers, like the guy in Houston, you know, that gets $17 million advance for his books, even though he doesn't write his books. Some guy who only makes $100,000 writes his books, his ghostwriter. Uh, that's basically what he's preaching. He's basically preaching, if you have enough faith, you're always going to have a lot of money, and you're never going to get sick. Look at me. i got a lot of money, and I'm 35. I've never been seriously ill. Hey, buddy, it's coming. It's coming. Just wait, you know. Stuff's going to start hurting all the time, you know. Uh, but basically, that draws a crowd under the canopy of modern American Christianity. God wants you to be happy. God doesn't want you to be happy. God wants you to be righteous and to have joy. Happiness is based on your happenings. You can't be happy with a migraine headache. 
the most spiritual person in the world is not happy with a migraine headache or a brain tumor or if their child's just been murdered. You can't be happy about that. Of course not. Joy is more profound. It's the eye of the hurricane. It has a range from ecstatics to stability based on your personality and your circumstances. Uh, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Is it possible to have joy while you're being crucified? Yeah, it's possible. I think only one person could do that, but it's possible. But it doesn't say because he was happy about it. He's not happy about it. What's he doing the night before? If there's any way we've got a plan B, let's go to plan B. There ain't no happiness at the cross. That's our symbol. That's our symbol. And so now we want to tell people God wants you to be happy. If you know, if you don't like your 40-year-old wife, just trade her in for two 20-year-old girlfriends. You know, God wants you to be happy. It's easier to get forgiveness and permission. Just do it and then ask for forgiveness. You know, it's going to affect you. Anyway, it's interesting that a lot of uh, modern evangelicalism sounds a lot more ep- like Epicurean philosophy to me. And, and I'm an old guy, okay? So I've seen it all. I've done it all. I've, I, I say just I've seen it all. Uh, all right, that's 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 one group. This other group is actually their polar opposite. And it's interesting. You know, the gospel brings enemies together. You know, you read about the Sadducees and the Pharisees, don't you, Nancy, in the Gospels. Every time Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he attracts the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And Jack, if you didn't know better, you'd think the Sadducees and the Pharisees were just either two kinds of skin diseases or, uh, you know, right, uh, or two kind of religious groups like Baptists and Methodists that, you know, are different but loved each other and got along for most, in most purposes. No! James has had advanced theological, theological training. He can tell you the Pharisees and the Sadducees hated each other's guts in the name of religion. You know, they were the two Jewish sects, S-E-C-T-S, that were the furthest apart. Same thing with the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. So when Jesus comes to town, the avowed enemies, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, get along because they have a common enemy. I just spent, you know, I just survived three days with both of my sons, both my daughter-in-law, six grandkids, and my wife, and uh, you know one of my favorite jokes, which I'm seeing so true all the time. But you know, why do grandparents and grandkids, grandparents and grandkids get along so well? Pause. They have a common enemy. The common enemy would be you know the little kids' parents, and for me, my kids, because I'm all for the grandkids. Whatever you know, the rules go away when when Kristen walks out of the room. You know, with me and Cooper, right? So, uh, yeah, so what brings people together? Common enemies, okay? Why, why would the Pharisees and Sadducees get together to try to make Jesus look bad? Because they liked each other? Lance, they didn't like each other. Why would they get together and make Jesus look bad? Because they agree they want Jesus to look bad, right? Interesting, the Epicureans and the Stoics were kind of like that. They're opposites. Epicureans was, it feels good, do it. The Stoics were basically, if it feels good, don't do it. It's all about kind of virtue via self-discipline. So these kind these kind of people became very rigid and self-righteous. And, you know, something feels good, don't do it. Because, obviously, if it feels good, it's got to be bad for you. And that's not necessarily true at all. Uh, you know, I would say a good workout makes you feel good. Really, it really gets everything going. If you are if you feel terrible after workout, you're overtraining. You know, you're doing the wrong things. Now, I know no pain, no gain. But, really, in a lot of times, yeah, you feel invigorated after you do your aerobics, you know, if you do it right. Uh a lot of times I just lay down until the feeling goes away and just don't do it. You know, that's a problem. 
But yeah, these are kind of polar opposites. And yet, guess what? In the same way that somebody, I'll go ahead and use his name, you know, Joel Olstein basically is an Epicurean that baptized theology with a, some biblical terminology. You know, th- there are a lot of folks on the far right, uh, the fighting fundamentalists that are really kind of like Stoics, you know. Uh, if it feels good, don't do it. You know, it's all about my self-denial. You know, really, uh, Christianity ought to be a joyous pursuit of the person of Jesus Christ. We've been built for a person and a place. That person is the Lord Jesus. That place is heaven. Uh, we anticipate uh, uh, doing TDY here, to use the military jargon, temporary duty, uh, waiting for PCS, permanent change of station, right? And, uh, you know, uh, we... Uh, should be embracing Christianity with a joy, not with kind of a, uh, a, uh, righteous indignation at uh, all the evil around us. I think we have to deal with that. But full of self-righteous pride or pseudo-sophistication, enemies come together when Paul starts preaching the gospel, and they're not really understanding what he's talking about very well yet, but no, they know he's talking about Jesus and the resurrection. So that's a good start, right? Now, you know, Paul's gospel is good news. It's the good news about who and what Jesus is. Jesus was the God-man Savior. He's unique. He's different than Buddha. He's different than Muhammad. He's different than Mary Baker Eddy. He's different than all the world religious founders. It's a whole category mistake to say, why Why do you Christians make Jesus so exclusive? By definition, he's a whole different category. He's the creator taking on humanity without ceasing to be deity. And then he lives a perfect righteous life and then what happens on the cross? S-A-S. Substitutionary atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world validated by his literal, if you went on the time machine, you'd see him, bodily, it involved his body, not just his spirit being supernaturally revived and and uh, uh, by God as the kind of the material he uses for his resurrection body, his physical body is gone because not the, you know, the, You've heard this, Blanche, of course, but you know the the angel moved the stone not so Jesus could get out, but why? So witnesses could validate a bodily resurrection. LBSR, literal bodily, supernatural. You can't reproduce this in the laboratory. Resurrection from the dead. So he's the unique issue and issuer of eternal life. Uh, his death on the cross pays the debt that we owe God because of our sins that we could never pay. And the good news is that because Jesus died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. He himself says, unless you believe I am he, the Messiah, you're going to die in your sins. Uh, and as I like to say, a dead Savior, just list some. You know, list all the major world religious leaders and all the world world religious people. Buddha and Muhammad are good examples. Can't get anybody from Oklahoma to heaven, but the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, is the only one who can so the good news is, as we look at Paul's initial ministry in Athens, he's interacting with Jews and God-fearing Gentiles and average people in the street and the movers and shakers in the philosophy business. And they're not really buying what he's talking about, but at least they kind of know the essence of where he's, what he's talking about in that he's talking about Jesus and the resurrection. Now let's look at verses 19 through 34 and see uh, Paul's ministry at the Areopagus where the philosophers would meet on a little hill just south and west of the Parthenon called Mars Hill. And we'll see the setting, his message, and then the response to the message. Look at verse 19. And they took him, that is his philosophers who were talking about what he's doing and what he's saying. 
and trying to process it, uh, they took Paul and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you're proclaiming for you're bringing some strange things, things that we haven't thought about to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. And then Luke, in most translations, will put this in a parenthesis, even though there's no parenthesis in the Greek text, but I think it is kind of parenthetical, verse 21. Luke just wants you to know that all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there, the out-of-town philosophers, used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new in the philosophy area. Uh, in the metaphysical area, they were, that's all, that's what they do, you know. You go to Washington DC, uh, what, what is the, what drives Washington DC? Is it agriculture, the oil business, uh, is it, uh, digital, uh, uh, production? No, it's just government. It's just the government. That's what they do, you know, Washington DC. In ancient Athens, it was all about philosophy, and you've heard of Socrates and Plato and Epicurus and, uh, uh, all the, Zeno was the guy who actually was the founder of the Stoics because he stayed at the Stoa, and so they identified that with uh, Zeno. Zeno kind of sounds like a rock musician, but Zeno was the guy who started the other thing. So they had good names back then too. So yeah, so we, we, we got Paul in the middle of all the PhD philosophy uh, stars of the day, and they were the rock stars in Athens. Now let's look at what Paul says to them. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and I just asked him, just tell us what you're saying and explain it, please. You know, so this is music to any preacher's ears. I mean, just please tell me what you're trying to, trying to say. Now, uh, earlier this year I said, you, every Christian should have an elevator pitch, and in the business world they tell salesmen, you need to have an elevator pitch. What's an elevator pitch? Well, you know, if you were going to get on an elevator, on a, a skyscraper, and be in an elevator for like two or three minutes uh, from the ground floor to the 35th floor or whatever, uh, and somebody said, hey, what do you do for a living? If you're a salesman, in, in a couple of minutes, you ought to be able to tell them what you, what you are, what you're selling, and why they ought to buy it. You, know, you ought to be able to condense it to that. Now, if you've got an hour, you can use an hour to try to convince them. But everybody in sales is told you've got to have an elevator pitch. Okay? Really, to me, every Christian ought to have an elevator version of their testimony. Okay? Uh, in Puebla, we kind of reduce it down to that and, and write it out in Spanish, remember? That's kind of your elevator pitch. We're not trying to leave out all the details. We're just trying to be really su- succinct in that kind of setting. And then if you've got five or ten minutes or an hour, you can go into more detail. So they're basically saying, tell us what, what the bottom line is here. And look what he does. He doesn't open up John 3.16 or the Gospel of John. Why not? Hasn't been written yet, for one thing. But then again, he doesn't go to Isaiah 53, like he tends to do with the uh, the Jews in the synagogue. Why not? These are Greek philosophers. They know nothing about Scripture. And they couldn't care less. So he has a different approach. He starts with what we would call general revelation. Look what he does in verse uh, 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I want to compliment you. It's kind of a tongue-in-cheek compliment. I observe that you are very religious in all kinds of different respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, and you've got all these many Greek gods, you've built temples to almost all of them in Athens, in addition to all that other good stuff you got out there, also found an altar uh, with a temple associated with this altar, with the inscription, just in case we had left anybody out, 
this temple is dedicated to the unknown God. We don't want to get the, if we left anybody out, we don't want to get mad. So rather than that God saying, hey, I don't see a temple for me here. I'm going to destroy Athens. You say, yeah, your temple's right over here. You're the unknown God. So he sees that as he's walking around town and he says, I'm going to start there. I'm going to start where my audience is. Let me tell you, what you worship in ignorance, what you acknowledge might be out there, this I proclaim to you. The God, not a God, but the God. By the way, hold your place there. Go to Psalm 96. Talking about college students, the last time I taught Bible's literature at Cameron, I had a, a good Baptist that I had known from a previous class and had known around town who kind of, before class, was holding court with the students. I'm setting up PowerPoint and whatnot. And he said, well, you know, the Old Testament actually doesn't say there's only one God. It only says that the God of the Old Testament is better than all the other gods. And this is a Baptist boy, okay, who apparently was look, listening uh, too much to Joel Olstein. I don't know. I'm, not, I'm on the Joel Olstein kick. I bumped into him. On, I, that's all I could get yesterday, driving down from Tulsa, you know, as the world was coming to an end and everything was blowing around and stuff. But um, I'll get over it. I'll, I'll be over it by Wednesday. Trust me. I usually get over it. But, uh, yeah, look at Psalm 96. So, you know what? Uh, not trying to show him up, but I thought, hey, you know, I'm the teacher here. You're totally wrong. I said, hey, uh, let's, everybody's got your Bibles, right? Because they're actually bringing Bibles to the college classroom. I said, look at Psalm 96, verse 4. Let's see if what you're saying is really right. Uh, and you read just verse 4, and you don't want to just read verses, Chris. You've got to read sentences and paragraphs. You really want to know what it means. Uh, but Psalm 96, 4 says this, For great is the Lord, great is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, greatly to be praised, He is to be feared above all other gods. Whoa, Matthew. Maybe that kid was right. Maybe the Old Testament just saying, worship just our God, but the other gods just aren't as good. But then verse 5 says, for, in Hebrew it's key, means because. Here's why you ought to worship Yahweh, the God of creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why you should respect him above all other gods. Because all the gods of the people aren't real. They're just idols. People have just made stuff up. And they're worshiping stuff they made up. But the Lord made the heavens. He made the universe. You, you get that? Isn't that neat, Clay? You read verse 4, you think, oh my goodness. He's just saying our God is just better than the other gods. He's to be feared above all the gods. Read the next verse. Because all the gods of the peoples are phony. They're not real. They're made up. They're figments of people's imagination. Go back to Acts chapter 17. Notice the way Paul sketches that basic point. He says, I notice you guys worship all kinds of different gods, and you've even got a temple dedicated to any god you don't know about, just so you won't get him mad at you. But let me tell you what. The God, and the definite article's there, the one and only God, you know, one who made the world, all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. He doesn't need us to build buildings for him to have a place to live, you know. Uh, nor is he served by human hands. We can, can we serve God? Yeah. Does he need our help? No. He doesn't need our help. I've said that many times. Most preachers won't tell you that. But I get that from passages like this. I'm not making it up. Now, so Brad doesn't want us to be on nursery duty or... Uh, we, we desperately want people on nursery duty. Am I right? 
Because otherwise Ray has to do it. I, I'd do it, but I've got to do stuff up here. I, you know, I've gotten to where I can change diapers again because you know I kind of lost that ability. But now we got two twins. We got Violet and Eloise, and they need diaper changes constantly. You know, so so you'll know. Aren't you glad you came to church? You learned stuff, right? Uh, uh, but he he he's not served by human hands as though he needed any help from me or from Billy Graham or anybody else. Uh, since he himself gives to all people life and breath, little things like that, and all things, all good things come from God, directly or indirectly. And by the way, there's only one race. It's the human race. You know, there, there's no multiple races. There's just one genotype. There's a lot of phenotypes. The skin color may be different, but there's only one race. He made from one person, the man there is in italics, we're talking about Adam and then Eve and so on, uh, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times, nations come and go, and the boundaries of their habitation. Read the book of Daniel, he tells you that. That they would seek God. He, he designed them, and because of our sin, we've got a God-shaped vacuum, and we need God. And that's, that's the only thing that's going to fix that God-shaped vacuum. Drugs won't do it, uh, success won't do it, money won't do it, etc., they might seek God, it perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He's not far from each one of us. You know, some self-righteous Christians, and I've actually said this myself, will say, when somebody says, well, I found God when I was 27 years old. No, you didn't find Him. He wasn't lost. You were lost. How dare you say you found God? Uh, you know what? Beware of ripping one major theological tenet that may be true out of Scripture and jamming it woodenly on top of everything else. There are nuances with the way you talk about things. Debbie, I love you. Debbie, I love that hot dog you just cooked for me. Should she be offended that I'm comparing her to a hot dog? There's actually a lot of comparison. There's a lot of similarities between Debbie and a hot dog, just so you'll know. Uh, but, uh, you know, language is nuanced, okay? Technically, yeah, I get it. Salvation is of the Lord. We just did a message on that, efficacious grace, more than you want to know about efficacious grace. Although I got a lot of good feedback on that one, by the way. But uh, here it says that we, this is Paul. So, you know, this isn't Dallas Theological Seminary made this up. So, you know, that only started in 1934. So that's one criticism of Dallas Seminary. It wasn't even invented until 1934. How dare they come up with all this stuff? Well, uh we have come up with some stuff that's not in Scripture, but we've corrected most of that. But uh, this idea that, yeah, uh, you know, we've been designed to seek God. Uh, but Romans says nobody seeks God. You know what? You can't seek God without some help, okay? But God gives every soul that reaches God consciousness and self-consciousness uh, an ability through common grace to move on a glide path toward Him. Common grace won't save but if you're positive that common grace God gives you, eventually you'll get to the point where efficacious grace will be granted and you'll see and believe. And he, God doesn't force you to believe and he doesn't give you faith to believe. You believe, but he enables it. So I get all of that and I believe all that. But in a sense, unsaved people are supposed to grope and find God. So when somebody says, I found God when I was 22, I'm not going to criticize that anymore. Because Paul says that can happen and that does happen. Uh, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your Ep- Ep- Epicurus actually wrote that. Or actually, Epimenides, the Greek poet, not Epicurus, sorry. Uh, some of your poets have said, for we are his children. Being then now the children of God, we ought not to think that divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, like all those 
temples that have those images in them in ancient Athens. Images formed by the art and thought of man. I love that expression there, Scott. Images formed by the art and the thought of man, right? Now people go, well, you know, that they were so backward back then. They're worshiping idols, you know, Athena or Apollo or all these gods or whatever, Zeus. You know, we worship idols too. We worship the idol of success, money, pleasure, uh, approbation, all kinds of stuff. Uh, so it's we just are more sophisticated in our unbelief in, in modern culture, right? Um, by the way, uh, I get that the fact that the, the scripture clearly teaches that we're born estranged from God and only through faith in Christ do we become children in a full spiritual sense. But Amber, notice that Paul's talking to unbelieving Greek philosophers here and he's saying, hey, God created human beings, including you guys I'm talking to, that you should seek God according to truth and you should find him and he's not far from you. And so being the children of God, we, Paul and his listeners, ought not to think of the divine nature like something that we can dream up or fashion in, in wood or stone. I like what Ryrie says about uh, being the children of God in his footnote. I like to use the Ryrie Study Bible. But notice in verse 29, Paul's saying the Athenian philosophers, unbelievers, are children of God. I'd say lowercase, generic children of God. And Ryrie says, not that Ryrie's perfect, but I think he's good on this one. Being then the children of God, not in the sense that we all have something of the divine in us or in them, he's talking about their person, uh, not that we are his redeemed children in our unbelief, but that all people were created and given life by God. So I would say that's a lowercase c. We're all children of God in that sense. So occasionally people will freak out because... And one time Billy Graham was praying in front of the Senate and he said, you know, God loves all his children all over the world, every person. And they're going, oh my gosh, he's denying, you know, the incarnation and uh, salvation by grace. No, he's using the term just like Paul does here. I get the fact that as many as received Christ to them, became the right to become children of God in a relational, spiritual sense. Let's call that a capital C. But just realize language is nuanced. Scripture is nuanced. The Bible doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means by what it says in the context it says it. Right? Just like everything else does too. Now watch this. So Paul's going through a general revelation starting from the most basic place. You guys are admitting there may be something out there you don't know about. And let me tell you, he's responsible for everything. If anything now exists... Something or someone must be eternal and outside of time and space or else the source of everything popped in existence out of nothing. That's all anybody gets. Either the universe is eternal, not possible based on physics. The universe popped in existence out of nothing, absolutely by nothing. That's not possible. You've either got a uh, transcendent universe or a transcendent creator outside of the universe. That's all you got, especially what he's saying here. He's just saying, hey, let me blow your categories. And I think he's really blowing his categories. And look, look where he ends up, basically. He ends up by saying, therefore, he's out there. And you haven't gotten specific information up to now. But now God is saying in the aftermath of the coming of the Messiah, here I'm here now, and here now to tell you this, God is now declaring to people everywhere, including you, that everyone should repent. 
Now, in English, repent sounds like feel sorry, really sorry for your sins. I call that contrition. The day I got saved, I was very sorry about my sins. I'm still pretty sorry about most of my sins, you know, just so you'll know. And I'm a professional Christian, so that's good. But, you know, I think most American readers read repent as feel sorry for your sins. That's a whole different dynamic. Of course you feel sorry for your sins before you trust the Savior. But the word here for repent is a very specific term in the original. It's metanaeo. means to change your mind. Now, if you really change your mind about something, you'll change your uh, direction and you'll change your emotions will eventually change too. But metanaeo has nothing to do with emotion. It has to do with volition. It means to change your mind about your sin. You got it. And it's on you. And a lot of Americans don't buy that anymore. They don't even believe in sin. They don't even believe in evil, metaphysically. Okay? That sin is fighting words in most of modern America. People don't want to hear that they're sinners, you know? Uh, so, to be saved, you've got to change your mind about your sin. You're a sinner, and it's your fault. It's not just your parents. You can blame some of it on your parents, some of it on your pastors, some of your teachers and police and, and the president, but ultimately it's on you. You've got to change your mind about yourself. Can you fix what needs to be fixed? Donald Trump is not a great theologian, but he has said, you know, which doesn't mean he doesn't have some good ideas here or there. And he's bringing himself on the table that needs to be discussed, in my opinion. But um, I want Ben Carson. You know, I want uh, Ted Cruz. That's just me. You know, you vote who you want to. Um, but, I mean, I'd vote for Eric Ward right now. I mean, are you running? It's not too late to file, you know. But... Uh, yeah, Donald Trump says something. Well, no, I've never asked God to forgive me for anything, and I'm a pretty nice guy. You know, I'm a really nice guy. Well, I'm sure he's a very nice guy when the cameras are rolling in certain contexts. But uh, to be saved, you've got to change your mind about your sin. You got it. You're guilty. It's your fault. Yourself. You can't fix it. To the extent some Americans still believe in sin, most of them think that I've done enough good things. You put it on a scale. God puts my sins on one side of the teeter-totter and my good stuff on the other side of the teeter-totter. And I, for sure, I've done some bad things, but i got a lot more good things than bad things. It's kind of like at the end of uh, Super Summer, you know, we do the uh, the thingy with the money for the missions, you know. It's like, how are we going to win? Well, uh, And so all Americans, to the extent they still buy the concept of sin, just most of them assume they're pretty nice people. And a lot of them are very nice people, you know. But the problem is, if niceness could save you, God's not going to send his son to die for your sins. He's going to say, be as nice as possible, and I'll save those who are nice enough. So you got to change your mind about your sin. you got it yourself. You can't fix it. And righteousness, it's coming. And, I mean, and judgment, it's coming. And, and you've got to face it. And that's where Paul ends up. He says, therefore, all hear this. God is now telling you that all people should change their mind because... You face moral, personal accountability before the God who's the real God. Because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world, including you, Greek philosophers, in righteousness, through a man, capital M probably in your translation, I'm talking about the God-man Jesus, whom he has appointed, we could say anointed, Messiah is the anointed one, the Christ, having furnished proof that he qualifies to be the judge, the issue and the issue of eternal life, how? By raising him from the dead. So it's always about the resurrection, isn't it? Now, we've seen the message, which is generic. It's kind of just getting started. And if they'll give him some an opening, he'll get more specific now. But they're just kind of at the point where they can really start reacting, and they do. And it's ma- mainly negative. Look at the response, verse 32. Now, when they, these philosophers, all these PhDs, heard of the resurrection of the dead... Jesus was raised from the dead. Some began to sneer. Okay, the first reaction is, we're too cool to care. 
We're too cool to believe in the resurrection. That sounds like Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny to me. It's funny. Some of the, some of the people that claim the most to be open-minded and pride themselves on being open-minded are the most closed-minded to anything specific about Jesus Christ and the biblical gospel. It's a strange thing. That's the one thing, of course we gotta tolerate Islam. You can't call the militant Islamists, you know, you can't do that. That might say something bad about, uh, the, some people in that religion. But they will talk about fundamentalist Christians like we're the, you know, scum of the earth and they'll do stuff. The Metropolitan Museum of Art has stuff that desecrates the cross. And when we say, you know, that really is offensive to us, they'll say, sit down and shut up. First Amendment rights. We got our First Amendment rights. How dare you try to censor us? But then some of these folks will turn around. Well, you know, they really shouldn't have drawn that cartoon, you know, because, I mean, you're just asking for them to kill you. I mean, how could you possibly expect them not to kill you if you draw a cartoon of their prophet? Isn't it interesting that we bend over backwards to appease that and we vilify uh, the truth? That's just kind of where we are. You know, I, I believe in the First Amendment. I, I, I'm the mass... The vast majority of Muslims are not jihadists. They're not violent. A lot of them who aren't violent don't have that big of a problem with what ISIS is doing regionally, okay, just so you'll know, uh, based on certain interpretations of the Quran. But it's capable of multiple interpretations, and I get that. But it seems strange that the people who claim to be the most open-minded, like our liberal left, uh, are the most close-minded, about the specifics about who Jesus is. Anything else is fine. You can marry a tree, and they're going to support that. But you say the God-man died on a tree, they don't want to hear that. Take the Ten Commandments out, because it might influence somebody. Then what would what would the world be like for a week if nobody broke the Ten Commandments? Would it really be all that bad? I mean, you could the military could take the whole week off. All the police officers could take the whole week. There'd be no theft, no lying, no cursing, uh, no fornication, no murders. Is that, a, that what's so bad about that? It's kind of like when I was a kid. You know, my mother warned me about the Beatles, and I'm listening to them sing "I Want to Hold Your Hand." I thought, what's so bad about that? You know, it got worse, of course, later. But uh, uh, the people seem so afraid of the Ten Commandments. You know, uh, why? You know, I don't know. But that's just me. Bottom line is, the majority, I take it, of the philosophers just won't even get past the resurrection. They just stop thinking. However, others of the philosophers, I take it a smaller group, said, we'll think more about this. We'll, we'll, we're open to hear you talk about this more later. Not now. We're too convicted to hear much more now. But we'll hear you again. We're open to that. Uh, but, verse 34, some average people who may have kind of sneaked up on Mars Hill to hear this or interact with Paul before or after that occasion. Some men joined him and believed, among whom are Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius. These are folks that would have been well-known and uh, well-respected in and around Athens. So that's why their names are important there in that context. Uh, take this to heart. Being too cool to care about academic things is a problem for some college students. It's really a problem for anybody who's too cool to care about spiritual things. And you can see this in believers and unbelievers. Uh, as I'm saying, as I look at modern America, a lot of Americans are just too cool to care about the specifics of Christianity. They'll say, well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Don't get specific about Jesus, anything about morality or theology, but 
I'm really spiritual, meaning I want to hook up any kind of power that can make me feel better about myself or make me more money or make me look prettier or whatever. I'm, I'm spiritual. I want to manipulate spiritual power for my benefit. But I'm not real religious. I don't want to be specific about Jesus or anybody else. Uh, that's a problem because if you're too cool to care about spiritual things generally as an unbeliever, I mean, you got no hope. What does Jesus say about saving faith? Unless you humble yourself like a little child... You know, Cooper knows he can't fix stuff, a lot, most stuff, you know. I've taught, used the example of Jamie, you know, I, he was nine years old before I, I thought the only thing he could say was, uh, wasn't fick it, fick it. You know, he, he walked up to me, break his toy, fick it, fick it, fick it. You know, couldn't say fix. He had a problem with the X sound. He can say it now. But, uh, you know, uh, little children realize they need help. They don't always receive help when they need it, but they, eventually they hit a wall where they know they need help. So God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And when you won't even acknowledge your sin or your inability, you got no shot. you got no shot. Little children are typically in certain situations, not always in everything, but happy to recognize their need and their need for the parents to help them, right? Uh, by the way, we're talking about idols here. Everybody believes in something. Whatever, you're, whatever is at the heart of your self-concept, your core values, your priorities, that's your God, Russell. Sometimes it's drugs, sometimes it's money, sometimes it's sex, sometimes it's uh, uh, vertical acceleration in a career, things like that. Sometimes it's possessions. So we don't, most Americans don't have wooden idols or gold idols, phys, you know, figurines, but people without God always put something in that vacuum. And the bottom line for unbelievers who are like that, when they stop believing in the true God, they don't believe in any uh, believe in nothing, they believe in anything, and you get all the crazy stuff you see. Now, let me finish this way: uh, being too cool to care can affect believers too, but in a different way. And I, I see this sometimes. Uh, sometimes kids that I know grew up in good churches, go to college, and now they're a little bit too cool to get too specific about Jesus in that setting because they don't want the cutest girl in the room to think they're too serious about this religious stuff. You know, so beware of being too cool to care on business trips or in certain situations or at the country club or wherever it is you hang out with a bunch of cool people. Uh, and I'm talking about vis-a-vis your relationship with Christ, your faith in the absolute irreducible truths of Scripture, or your connection with your local church. Uh, that sometimes happens to people, and it's a problem. So I would say this, you know, uh, unbelievers sometimes are too cool to care about spiritual things. Sometimes believers are too cool to share about spiritual things because they don't want their buddies to realize on the football team they're that serious about this thing because all the cool people don't seem to be. But you got to transcend that. Uh, this idea that being a Christian is going to make you look cool, Jesus isn't cool. Forget that. I know the way they draw him now, that he's got the flowing locks and stuff. He always looks good. But Isaiah says he doesn't look special. He has no appearance we'd be attracted to him. He looks like an average Palestinian Jew, okay? That's what he looked like. He wasn't cool. Dying on a cross isn't cool. It's not cool. Forget about being cool, you know? Now, I'm not saying you've got to go out of your way to be unstylish. Go ahead and be stylish, okay? But, I mean, I am. But, uh, you, I'm nothing but stylish, you know that. But this obsession with, uh, let's go to the cool church. Church is all about us being cool. Jesus is cool. No, he's not. 
You know, this is offensive to people. You're a sinner. You can't fix it. And he's the only one who can. That's not cool. People don't like that. You know, they never will. And, and so uh, just be aware of that. Uh, one more thing and I'll close. Uh, I bumped into people uh, over the years that get into certain theological camps and they really think they've got a unique take on the grace of God. And the more they know about the grace of God, the more graceless they become toward everybody who's not exactly where they are on every fine point of theology. And I think that's a problem. You know, uh, I've learned a lot from Arminians and from Calvinists. I'm a Calvinian right in the middle, right? But I've found some folks on the extremes tend to think unless you dot every I and cross every T exactly I do, uh, maybe I can tolerate you, but I don't like it. And uh, I've learned a lot from uh, believers that have different convictions on secondary things than I do. And I think we should do that too. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, forgive us for maybe putting, uh, trying to be cool or perceived as in and hip as way too important on our uh, value judgments or on our kind of our, our TV screen of our lives. Help us to uh, realize that uh, we can be too cool. Uh, and it's not all that important to to be impressive to pop culture or those around us and those kind of superficial things help us to center on christ and and i understand the lord jesus was able to interact with uh, prostitutes and tax collectors he was easily able to in a loving positive way interact with people without compromising his standards but he was embraced people uh, that were considered to be outcasts not just the the uh, the cool crowd, and forgive us for maybe seeing Jesus as kind of our way to become cool. Uh, help us to uh, avoid making him a superhero. He's the creator, the agent of creation, the agent of regeneration because of his death and his resurrection, and help us to realize that we want to be correct, we want to be righteous, we want to be joyous, and forget about being cool. Uh, we want to be cool the way you define it and not the way the world defines it. I pray, Father, for anyone here this morning who has never uh, trusted Jesus Christ alone for their salvation, I pray you'd open their eyes to see and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, let them see that we've all broken your standards. I mean, we break our own standards at our worst, much less yours. We can't fix it. If we could fix it, you wouldn't have sent your son to pay that dead on the cross. You would have just told us to fix it if we can. Uh, and judgment is coming, just as Paul told the uh, philosophers here. There's a day coming when God's going to judge the world in righteousness through the one who's been resurrected from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ. So open hearts to be convicted of a need and then uh, let them see that Jesus died for them. And uh, you love the world so much you gave him to pay the sin debt to be resurrected from the dead, to validate that payment, and to show he's the one who gives eternal life to all who simply believe through active, receptive trust. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I cannot fix it, uh, but I believe you can. I believe you died for me and rose again. I trust you and my eternal salvation to you and you alone from the depth of my heart. And uh, let today be the day of salvation. For the rest of us, let us embrace Christ over coolness. In his name, amen.